Hi, I'm Chris Sprouse, Speaker of the Florida House and former prosecutor. From policy briefs to white papers, court cases to brutal police records, no matter my role, reading has been a central part of my mission to defend American values. But this isn't just my job. Reading books is a personal passion, and getting to know the authors behind the ideas on the page is one of my favorite pastimes. The Red, White, and Blue podcast is now in session. Welcome back, listeners. Today, we're talking with author, presidential counselor, political strategist, campaign manager, and mom, Kellyanne Conway, about her new book, Here's the Deal. In it, Conway takes her readers on a wild journey through her story of growing up in South Jersey all the way to the pinnacles of American politics in the White House. Kellyanne faced withering criticism along the way and emerged scarred but emboldened. She joins us today to share her unbelievable journey and what lies ahead for her. Kellyanne Conway served as a senior counselor in the Trump White House. She was a founder of the polling company, which she ran for 21 years and now runs KA Consulting LLC. Kellyanne served as the campaign manager to the Trump-Pence presidential campaign, becoming the first woman to successfully manage a winning presidential campaign. She is one of the most quoted and noted pollsters on the national scene. Recently, I sat down with Kellyanne to talk about her new book, Here's the Deal. Join us now for that conversation. Well, Kellyanne, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. It's great to be with you, Chris. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. There's so much to talk to you about. Uh, you've written a new book. Uh, first, you know, kind of set the table for us a little bit. Tell us why you decided that you know now is the time to sort of tell tell your story. Well, I appreciate it, Chris. I mean, in the last five or six years, I, I think people have come to know who I am through my time as campaign manager to Mr. Trump, and then of course the first woman to successfully manage a U.S. presidential campaign, all the way to being senior counselor for pretty much his entire term. But I've spoken for people and for the country and people have spoken about me and at me. Um, and I, it was time for me to really speak up for myself. But also people always want to know the story behind the stories. And I had a very unique background in that these four Italian Catholic adult women raised me in the house. I call them South Jersey's version of the Golden Girls. And a lot of that upbringing happened right there in Florida. That was always my happy place. We had a tiny little bungalow in Hollywood, Florida, on McKinley Street growing up in Florida, I, I, I was a big part of my upbringing. But I think the message I have is that even though my journey has been unique, how did you go from this tiny little house of one child and four women to a house of one woman and four children, um, all the way to the White House? But in some ways, it's my unique story, but it's also any woman's story. You know, we all strive, we all work hard, we all try to make the best decisions we can for ourselves and our family. I'm a woman who started a business at 28, who um, gave up my law degree, you know, gave up the practice law, even though I have a law degree and started my own business. And then that that compelled me to defer and delay marriage and motherhood till later, which many women are also doing. And really, what was what what happened when Donald Trump asked me to be campaign manager? Why me? What was our conversation? Some never before told stories about decision making processes in the White House. What happens to the 74 million Trump Pence voters? who are really many of whom are suffering right now in the Biden-Harris economy and energy dependence and et cetera. But um, I also wanted to tell everybody that I was raised in a house where we talked about so many issues of the day in the 1970s and 80s, but I don't recall ever having a single political conversation. And to me, that's very common that you come to your politics, you come to your conservative beliefs, you come to your Republican adherence um, through issues, through time-worn principles through faith and freedom and military and uh, being, I think, kneeling for the Lord, standing for the flag is the way we were raised. 
And so in many ways, it's any woman's story, but this is not a tell all and bore most. I'm not speaking up now because I didn't speak up then because God knows I spoke up then, Chris. So, but I think people are, they're really um, gravitating toward it. And it was a great Father's Day gift for many people too. Well, it was, it was a great book. I actually finished it over Father's Day um, in anticipation of our conversation. First of all, it was uh, laugh out loud funny. Uh, at times. Uh, so, I mean, we kind of know how witty you are seeing you on television, uh, but really seeing it in print was was something to behold. But you, you made a point about, I, I feel like people think they know you, Kellyanne, because, you know, we all see you, we see you on TV during the election cycles, before the election cycles, talking about being a pollster, a media commentator. It reminded me how little we actually know about people that we see who we feel like we know in the public eye about their family and where they come from. Um, you talked about being a girl from South Jersey, about your Italian family. So I, I know you talked a little bit about that just now, but but tell us a little more about your family. I, I love the scene, by the way, because it reminded me, my parents are from the Bronx in Brooklyn, of going for big Italian dinners. Uh, it's like the seventh course. Yes. And they just like, why can't you keep eating? Uh, so, you know, you learned a lot during that period of time, which I feel like transitioned later into being a pollster and so forth. So to give us a little bit of a flavor for that. I'm so glad you're, you're keying in on that. All these interviews are so different, uh, depending on what the interviewer wants to discuss. So yes, I grew up in this Italian family. I obviously favor my father's Irish side. My father left when I was three, Chris. I don't want people to feel sorry for me. No child support, no alimony. I met him when I was 12. And he asked if he can come back into my life. I said, yes. And I got a father and a half brother out of it. And I do try to tell people that because I'm a flawed person who seeks redemption and mercy and forgiveness routinely from people and certainly from God, I decided um, to give that when I was asked of that at age 12. And I really try to encourage people to do that as well. So, but I was raised in this Italian house and my grandmother, the matriarch, Antoinette in the house, she would cook with just four burners, no pantry, no microwave, nothing like that. Two, you know, one oven, four burners. And we would feed the masses with the makeshift folding chairs and card tables. I mean, just dozens and dozens of people, certainly for holidays, but really, Chris, every Sunday for Sunday dinner, which was at 3 p.m. somehow, 2 or 3 p.m. And, uh, and I'd invite people from college, from law school, jump in my car, come up for the weekend, do your laundry, bring back some leftovers. But we would, I remember inviting somebody, I wrote about this, I, wrote, I invited a friend and I looked over and she had nothing on her plate. She was like trembling. I said, what's wrong? She said, why is everybody yelling? I said, nobody's yelling. What do you mean we're yelling? And of course we were just talking, it's very lively, um, talking about issues of the day, looking people in the eye. And, and those, those raucous Sunday dinners really, I think, helped me, for, helped me choose the career I love, which was the gift of my professional life, Chris, before I was Donald Trump's campaign manager and senior counsel in the White House, was I was a professional pollster and again now, have another company now, but for, for decades, literally for over 20 years, I would go to all 50 states. I've been to every single state doing projects there, talking to people in focus groups, pouring over polling data. And instead of acting like a Hillary Clinton, where you denigrate and castigate people as deplorable and worse, irredeemable, I learned to appreciate and assimilate and just adore the simple wisdom of the American people. People, and you know this because you're an elected official. God bless you. People have such great ideas. If they were our representatives, things would go very differently. They have thought this through. They have wonderful ideas about how to fix our problem, how to solve problems, how to fix what's broken. And they want to make sure that they have a voice that's not being squelched or not being silenced on the altar of wokeness. Um, Donald Trump and Mike Pence really made those forgotten men, forgotten women, and I would add forgotten children, because I'm a school choice charter school gal, 
they, you know, Chris, they felt like finally somebody was there for them because they saw in Donald Trump a political outsider and they see themselves as political outsiders, pressing their nose up against the glass, looking in and saying, when is it my turn? And I was also a bit of an outsider because I was never, and I write in the book, um, I mean, I'm a non-feminist, uh, certainly maybe an anti-feminist, but post-feminist, but I was never freely given a seat at the big boys table in Republican polling and Republican consulting. Um, which was male dominated. And I have to thank them. I thank those jerks, um, some of them sexist all. I thank those yeah. jerks for excluding me, Chris, because it forced me to go out and do issue campaigns to work for corporate America. Major League Baseball was a huge client of mine. I remember when the Marlins wanted to open up a new, they were, I think they were in the Miami Marlins at the time. They they wanted to open up a new stadium. I did a ton of work for them for Major League Baseball. And it forced me to, un- to go beyond what likely voters think and to see how everybody is making decisions, spending their time, spending their money, responding to what their kids want to do or the elders in their lives want to do. And I learned to just appreciate um, the, what you can learn from people if you just ask them to define themselves for you instead of putting them in these little boxes by gender, by race, by age, by geography. Absolutely. Oh, so good. I uh, My favorite vision of you, by the way, scene of you in the book is not uh, election night. It's not the White House. It's this the scene you describe in the book where I think it's your daughter. You're in this van. You're in the back seat. You're answering emails. You're feeding your daughter who's in the middle seat. Your aunt is driving. You know, you're having to stop to get out to do a conference call on a poll, you know, to, to talk to the client. You're getting back in. You're doing it all over again. It, it's just a, such a cool uh, scene, I think, to for people to get to know you. But also, as you mentioned, you transition into this time of advising people about what normal people are, are feeling and thinking you are a normal person. And I, and candidly, in my experience in politics, a lot of times there's not always normal people who are trying to advise us. So I think that seemed to, to really be something that you were able to capitalize on. Yes. I call it cheerful chaos. And that was the beginning <laughs> of motherhood, Chris, it was a boy and a girl. I had boy, girl twins. They're now 17 and a half. They feed themselves, thankfully. And, uh, but at the time I said, please remind me again about my glamorous life. I was in the third row of the minivan, had a dog in one of those dog carts, a Welsh Corgi uh, in a wheelchair. We wouldn't give up on her. And uh, my mom, my aunt driving, my mother and my aunt who helped raise me, you know, ne- never got married, no children around. And then in the middle of seats, the twins in their car seats facing me. And they're like, oh, gosh, it's two minutes away from a conference call. Someone's going to be crying or eating or in the dog's case needing to relieve her. And, you know, but you just get that game face on. We've all been there. But I think we working moms have all been there for sure, where somebody's FaceTiming you exactly when the you know, the business meeting is about to start. Somebody's, you know, the bewitching hour when the kids come home from school. But I also look, I also tell working moms and working women that there's a lot of mom guilt. And for me, mom guilt has always been very real. You feel like you're never giving anybody 100 percent of yourself, not your family, not your job. You know what? You are. Ladies, relax. You really are. You're doing a fantastic job, I promise you. Because if you have your priorities straight, you get a little bit more organized than I naturally was, Chris, then it all, you know, it all comes together. And one thing I did, because people say, How do you do it all? How do you do it? I said the same way you do it all. Oh, you have four kids. Listen, whether you have one or four, it's all the same in that you're in the game, you're responsible for other living, breathing human beings, and they rely on you. Uh, mom is still my favorite word, even though there were some weekend weeks there with four kids. If I heard it one more time on the weekend, I said, oh, even though it's my favorite <laughs> word ever. But let me just let me tie it together in this way. Yeah. Ladies, you know exactly what's best for your family. You are the expert on you and your children and the elders in your life and your spouses. So just go with that. But look, you are going to two things. You're going to need to learn to say no more. 
saying no is a gift we women give to ourselves because we never want to say no. We want to volunteer for everything. We want to make everybody at work happy. We want to, to be the first to sign up for a cupcake day at school. We want to give yourself a break. Remember, don't overestimate how much you can get done by this Friday and don't underestimate how much you can get done in the next two months and get that, get that balance. And I, I get tired of hearing women are the balance. You know what? We're trying to balance everything. We are the fulcrum. The light, seesaw of life will always be there like this. We are the fulcrum. It's just a much better way, I think, to look at ourselves. And when I got to the White House, I give President Trump a ton of credit, Chris, because he was an excellent boss for working women, excellent working moms, excellent boss. We had lots of working moms there. But I did tell him from the beginning, you know, Mr. President, I came to the White House almost kicking and screaming. I was running toward a goal mine of life-changing money, eight figures. I was selfishly doing that. Plus, my kids at the time were barely 12, 12, 8, and 7. They were really crappy ages for mom to be in the White House. But one thing I said to him from the beginning, Chris, is I want, don't want to be press secretary. I don't want to be comms director for lots of reasons. But I took a policy job. Obviously, still was one of his main communicators. But I told the president, I'll go on any foreign trip you need me to go on. But as I relate in the book, I said, I'm going to take myself off the manifest for foreign trips because I can't imagine myself away from my kids for five days, eight days, 12 days. That's just not going to work for our family. I'll come to work every day, get a lot done, be on Capitol Hill for you, be at the White House for you. But I need to go home every night and be there for those kids. So it's just an example, a big, you know, maybe a bigger life next level example of what all the moms do. We have to learn to say no to other things to be able to continue to say yes to our children. Absolutely. And I, it's, I'm glad we did this. And I'm glad we, we started this conversation. It's not that was not planned, but it's a perfect segue into what I wanted to ask you about, which is you, of course, become a pollster, you become a, a female executive of your own company, which was rare for, for pollsters at the time, certainly. And you started advising people, particularly about, you know, this is what, you know, a demographic that Republicans have struggled with, particularly the Romney Ryan campaign. And you're talking about how you're in this room with other pollsters, and you're literally talking about what women want, which is another book that you had also written, um, and nobody's listening, <laughs> and, and and you're essentially kind of if I if I understood correctly, really laying out the pathway uh, to increase you know uh, or to decrease the gender gap for Republicans that that of course President Trump ends up using you know years later in 2016. So kind of tell us about that experience and how it ended up influencing the Trump campaign. Yeah, so I learned early on when I had my own company and CNN of all places hired me to be a political analyst which it was very rare to be paid to go on TV and talk in those days. I didn't think I knew what I was doing, but they saw something. So I, I tried. So that gave me sort of a one-on-one -on -one audience with lots of candidates and people in the C-suite and corporations and certainly sitting senators, members of Congress, governors, et cetera, state legislators. And it was great because they said, you know, I saw you the other night on CNN and you said something about the gender gap. Can you tell me again? So I learned and I, I, had, a, I had an elevator um, length speech for it too. Okay, if you can't remember everything I said, remember two two things, that women are getting the four M's and they become a little bit more conservative, maybe vote a little bit more Republican, marriage, motherhood, mortgages, mutual funds. And then I realized, oh, I have a mortgage and a mutual fund and a lot of student loans, but no marriage and motherhood. And I said, you know what? I, I dug into that a little bit more. And that was the going, that was really the going ethos in this country among women at the time, and still even more now, Chris, which is we are a product of our choices, not victims of our circumstances. And I think the left loves to think of women as victims. The patriarchy is coming for you. You're always put down. You don't have this. You're not that. And uh, women want to be uplifted. They want to 
have somebody's hopeful and optimistic and give them some facts and figures they can they can relate to and they can deal with. So I always said, listen, women are doing those four M's, but maybe in a different order and maybe not all four. Some are having the mortgages and mutual funds, no marriage and motherhood. Some are doing motherhood, no marriage. Some are doing marriage, no motherhood. So whatever it is. And now I have what I call the SAFE acronym that women are uh, not just looking at issues, but themes, security, affordability, fairness, or foreign policy, depending on the situation now, and education. And security can be everything from national security, small as social security, freedom from crime, drugs, gang violence, capital as social security, because a lot of women are in touch, you know, most women are in charge of their retirement savings now, and they outlive men by about seven years. Um, it could be obviously um, financial security, housing security. And then affordability, you know, everyday life has become unaffordable. I actually wrote about 15 years ago that when pe- women are at the grocery store, or the gas pump, which of course, look where we are now, but 15 years ago, I wrote about this and I said, stop talking to women from the waist down. You, you make it sound like all we care about is abortion. It's insulting. Stop talking to me from the waist down. The waist up is where my eyes, ears, mouth, heart, and brain lie. And so that sounds a little harsh, but I like to shock the conscience a little bit. And we have the Dobbs case coming down the pike soon. I mean, any minute now, any day, any week now in the Supreme Court. So, yes, of course, women care about abortion. Uh, Many are pro-life, by the way. Many say, what do you mean you can have an abortion the seventh, eighth, and ninth month? That's not America. That's not what I believe. So I I tackle all that in the book. And the anecdote you tell, I almost started the whole book out with that anecdote because it was so searing that 10 years ago, nine years ago, when Ken Cuccinelli was running against Terry McAuliffe for governor of Virginia, um, they wouldn't give me the polling. They had to give that to the big boys. So the same polling firm that did Bob Dole's polling, Mitt Romney's polling, John McCain's polling, Jeb Bush's polling. Do you see a trend here? (laughs) Uh, Donald Trump would have never hired them. And they were doing Ken Cuccinelli's polling. So they gave me the focus group. So I was focus grouping women all over Virginia. And we had done, it was the third and final focus group. And I came out after sitting there for two hours with women, swing voting women in the suburbs. And I came out to debrief and they were, they were gone. All the male consultants were gone, you know, and I put in the book probably to, you know, talk to their three kids who their second wife was, you know, raising as they, you know, talked to them for the third night in a row for two seconds and went out for their steak and martini dinner. But they had no interest. Forget about me. Yeah. They had no interest in what the women had to say in these focus groups. And Ken Cuccinelli's pollster told him he was losing by about eight points. Ryan Priebus, then the, the chairman of the RNC, had two governor's races that day, Virginia and New Jersey. And he was in New York by lunchtime, even though he lived in Virginia, because he was told by and he because Chris Christie got reelected as a governor of New Jersey, thankfully, with my vote and certainly included. And Rice wasn't even in Virginia because the, the pollsters had said Cuccinelli had no chance. You know, he lost to he lost to Terry McAuliffe by less than three percentage points. And had they just listened, had they read the damn memo, I put together a 15 page report. I could right, do an 18 page right. report with quotes from the women. But um, I got to tell you, Donald Trump was different and he wanted something different and he was willing to take a chance. And I say I had developed the secret sauce on how to run against Hillary over a series of years on two ways quickly. One is I become a student of Hillary Clinton. And I noticed that so many advantages women candidates have, you're seen as less corruptible, more ethical. Um, You're seen as fresh face, new blood. You're seen as a consensus builder, a great negotiator, a peacemaker. Nobody saw Hillary Clinton that way. So she couldn't advantage herself that way. They didn't trust her necessarily. And they wanted something fresh and new. 
And they wanted someone who had a ton of experience, but not in politics, and ended up being Donald Trump. Plus, I had listened to women and men for years, and I, I knew that Donald Trump was the wish fulfillment of what they, they were looking for a political outsider who had a different kind of experience they can relate to, somebody pre-verified. And this is a great message for you as an elected official and for all the folks out there. You know what? If you take an issue that's mired in single digits, if you have the courage to not just follow the polls, but have the polls follow you, Donald Trump did that with immigration and trade. He took two issues, Chris, that were mired in single digits in the polling, and he elevated them into the public consciousness and into his presidential platform. And those issues to this moment are very popular on the America first side of the agenda. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And we hear that every day uh, from folks. I, I, it reminded me when you were talking about, you know, the, the contrast between uh, the Cuccinelli crew and pollsters. You come in, President Trump, you say, is a great listener. And I want to talk a little bit about that uh, in a little bit and listen to you and your advice. Uh, it's actually the first the first favor you did for President Trump wasn't being his pollster, though. It was getting on the condo board. <laughs> so that's not something I think most people know about. So, you know, you and your, your husband, George, move into Trump Tower and, and tell us just quickly about that. Yeah, we, we moved into Trump World Tower as a married couple. We still split our time between uh, New York and Washington. And you see the chaos, cheerful chaos in the book. When we, so as we're having children, we decide to pick a city. And New York won. So we moved to Manhattan full time. I still have my company in D.C. I go back and forth. And in 2006, in the summer of 2006 or the spring, there is a board issue. People, you ready for this? Ten years before Donald Trump is elected president, people in the Trump World Tower, some of the condo owners, where George and I live, they wanted to take Donald Trump's name off the buildings. Does sound familiar, everyone? They wanted to, you know, make life miserable for him. And he was frankly doing a great job in the building. We were very happy residents and owners. And so George goes and helps. George Conway and a guy named Michael Cohen, yes, that one, um, helped Donald Trump that night. I was with the twins in Virginia. They were little. And long story short, George helps. Donald Trump calls in the next morning at the law firm where George worked for 30 years and says, hey, George, thanks so much. You were such a great help last night. Um, and that, you know, he sends George a handwritten note with that Sharpie, the whole thing. George still has a copy of it. Very proud. And then later in the day, somebody calls and says to George, well, I know Mr. Trump called you. We'd like to offer you a spot on the newly configured condo board. George said, I would never do that, but I bet my wife Kelly ended. <laughs> so I get on the Trump world tower condo board. I show up to the first meeting in Trump tower, you know, the famous, uh, Trump tower where, where the apprentices, where Donald Trump works. And I'm just minding my own business, Chris. I show up 15 or 20 minutes early. I have my binder all tabbed. I help myself to a refreshment. And I'm just waiting. And I hear that booming, familiar voice getting closer and closer. I said, Donald Trump comes to the meetings of the condo? Yeah. And he came in, no notes, no net, as I like to describe him and me. No notes, no net. Um, Kamala Harris can't do that, by the way. Uh, Joe Biden. <laughs> or or Joe Biden. Yeah. yeah. No, no notes, no net. And he comes in and he was relating facts and figures about the condo. The, the the condo building. And I was really impressed. And I said, does he do that? So we struck up sort of, a, you know, I would say a, a, a distant friendship, ally friendship, meaning he would call me a couple of times a year. Hey, I saw you on TV. Hey, what do you think of this poll? And then Donald Trump hired me to do a poll in 2011. He wanted to run against Barack Obama. And my poll showed it was going to be hard for him, particularly if, drum roll, please, he actually was not an announced candidate. I said, people say you're Donald Trump. Why would you do that? Why would you give up everything you have to go be president? How, how terrible. Give up all that money and privacy and fame and fortune that you already have. So um, he hired a different pollster who told him he could beat Obama. He liked that poll better. But fast forward five years later, um, he hired me. And, you know, I had given him the advice many times beginning in 2011, 2014, 15, 16. 
You don't know, Mr. Trump, what people really think of you until you're announced an announced candidate because they think you're just toying with them, teasing them. Why would you run for president? Melania Trump, our wonderful first lady, she gives him even better advice. She told her husband, Donald, if you run, be prepared to win and govern. In other words, don't run if you're not ready to be president of the United States. You don't want to be president of the United States. You don't want to give up. And she was right. She knew because she knew she knows him better than anyone. And I do write in the book. I wanted to share this because it hasn't got enough coverage. I write in the book that Donald Trump loves the company of men and women, confides in the women. I always felt heard and listened to even when we tangled a little bit on policy and I disagreed with some of the things he was doing and saying, I don't, I'm not saying it in my book now, like, oh my God, Kellyanne, I told him then. I'm just telling you now, but he, he learned it first. He confides in the women and listens to us, but he doesn't fear us. Donald Trump reserves his fear for one person and one person only, his wife, Melania Trump. <laughs> absolutely cares what she thinks. And she was the original counselor to the president. And I go through that in my book as well. And I love how you talk about Melania in the book, saying that she lived the whole time she was in it, in it to win it. And, uh, you know, I think it was a great, a great look at, at her and, and the role she had in the campaign. So, you know, uh, I know there's this there's this time. So 20 we get to close to the, the election where he's coming or close to his announcement. You said, hey, if you actually a real candidate. So then the escalator happens. He comes down the escalator. And I will tell you, Kellyanne, I will confess. And I've confessed this to President Trump. Um, my wife says he, he, I think he's not even at the bottom of the escalator yet. She's like, he's going to win this. And I'm like, honey, like I, I've spent my, you know, most of my adult life in politics as a young person, I was involved. And I said, honey, there's, there's no way that's just, that's not going to happen. And she said very confidently, nope, he's going to win. So I told that to the president when we got to, to get meet him the first that. time, the two of us. It's a typical story. No, they, I mean, the women saw something in him. Yeah. So what is it that, what is it that my wife understood intuitively that you understood intuitively and through polls that the vast majority of America, I think at the time, or a lot of America, certainly elite America, the media, that they didn't get. They thought it was a joke. They thought it was a publicity stunt. So what is it that they didn't understand? And you talk a lot about that, that, that those group of people in the book. Yes, it's an excellent question. And you know, Chris, your wife saw something that the elites whose job it is to see something and say something and predict everything did not see. And they didn't see it again in 2020. Do you know Democratic, prominent Democratic pollsters have apologized twice now? You can pull this up easily. They've apologized twice now. They did a major study as to how they can get so wrong in 2016 and in 2020, the so-called Trump voter. And I write in the book, the, the short answer is, we never deeply examine that which we deeply disdain. And they don't know anybody who owns a firearm, who would have a child through an unexpected pregnancy, who goes to church every Wednesday and Sunday, um, who blesses themselves in the public square before they take a meal, who they, 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 they live, they're so, their kids are already in the best schools. Uh, screen time is school time, no problem, because my kid can have a tutor that way and a, a college consultant for 25 grand that way. So when you are very cosseted and you don't, you, you haven't done what I did, which is go do projects in all 50 states, when it truly is flyover country to you rather than fellow Americans uh, thirsting for a different kind of leadership. And what your wife and so many other people saw in Donald Trump early was somebody who was different enough to qualify as a political outsider. And indeed, people forget Donald Trump is the first United States president in our nation's history to have never held previous elective office or military office. Dwight D. Eisenhower was the other one who never held elective office. So it means that you're not this slick politician. 
you don't, you know, you don't choose your words. They're not all focused groups. And I know many people are like, oh, what did he just say? What does that tweet say? I got it. But for other, for many Americans, they love that because they felt that they had transparency and they had access to a presidential communication instantly and without all that slick focus grouping instantly and free of charge. You know, I write in the book, Democratization of Information. He did it in the White House because the plumber on the job, the stay-at-home mom, the billionaire CEO could all access a presidential communication instantly and free of charge. But actually, he started it coming down that escalator. And it's what your wife and millions of Americans saw. This guy is just going to tell me how it is. He's not going to have people whispering in his ear. He's not going to have. And, uh, you know, it's funny thing about Donald Trump that I write in the book that nobody ever says he does not use conversation fillers. You never hear Donald Trump say, uh, you know, like you listen to Obama and Hillary. It's like texting with a teenager, <laughs> you know, uh, like, uh, uh, like Donald Trump doesn't, he just keeps talking like me. He right. just keeps talking. So once in a while, when you keep talking, you get yourself in a little bit of trouble, <laughs> but people at least listen, I think it's very simple. What your wife saw early is what people saw when Donald Trump was president. Let me make very clear in the white house where I worked, no one ever had to ask who is really the president who is really running right. the show. What mm. does the president think about that? We knew every single moment, the answer to every single question. Yeah. And America knew and America knew uh, virtually instantly uh, where, where he was. I, I love that you talk about, you said, in the, you know, when you took on the role, you became, you know, the, the first female to run a presidential campaign successfully. And you said you made a point, I think at least a couple of times to mention that he was the president was a listener, that he listened to you and what you had to say. And my wife and I got randomly invited on Air Force One by the president, which I'm pretty confident he's the only president who randomly invite, invited people on Air Force One. But what really struck me about the personal interaction um, was how much he would ask a question and intently listen to the answer. I Listen, I'm a politician. We've been in politics for a long time. I, you know, we know the difference between active listening and, and not active listening. And he was an active listener. So t- tell us how that changed the scope of the campaign. You come in eventually as campaign manager uh, in the 2016 race. Uh, the president's obviously in a dogfight with Hillary Clinton. You're building in the polling uh, and your years of experience on what women want, a lot of other things. So tell us how that how that led to victory. Yes, I write about it in the opening pages, really. Um, it's the last place I ever expected myself to be on the other side of Donald Trump's battleship of a desk, just one on one. And it was August 12, 2016. And he, I noticed, I already knew he was an active listener, but that moment, that 10 or 15 minute exchange between us, where then I become campaign manager and together we make a little history together. He was such an active listener, but he was also an instant decision maker. And people in politics really aren't. We'll get a commission. We'll study it. We'll have a couple <laughs> of hearings. We'll kick it into the next Congress. Oh, wait, um, that's not Donald Trump. And he took that volume and velocity with which he has worked for years into the White House. And look, it wasn't for everybody. Some people got fired or cast aside or, or slinked away in shame or just quit because they couldn't take that kind of volume and velocity. But on that day, very quickly, talk about active listener and instant decision maker. He said, can we still win this thing? And I said, well, of course, you know that. You're, you know you're going to win. I said, but look, the polls are rough right now. I said, the polls. I said, Mr. President, I don't know a billion things about a billion things. I don't know real estate and golf golf courses. I know polls. I know consumers. I know voters. This election right now is all about you. He said, I know I get the best press coverage. I said, well, you get the most press coverage. <laughs> he said, oh. And I said, it's not that there's a difference. If we can even it out, even though just a little bit, it's now like 98 Trump, 2% Hillary. And that's great for Hillary. And by the way, Chris, sadly, 
regrettably, four years later, that was great for Joe Biden. Yeah. Him 2% Biden in the bunker, 98% Trump. You right. want it to be more even, even mm. if it's 70-30. And so he agreed to that. And we started making Hillary an issue so that you knew your choice was not Trump or not Trump. Your choice was Trump or you had to swallow hard and cast aside your distrust of her and dislike of her, Hillary. So he agreed to that. The other thing he agreed to, I said, look, her blue wall is real. What we should do is we should do two things. And he agreed to both on the spot, which I couldn't believe. One was, I said, Mr. Trump, you have already blown to smithereens this fiction of electability. He can win. He can't win. Who can win? You know, Trump, you're a joke. You can't win. You already beat 17 Republicans to get here. So let's cast aside this fiction of electability, which pretends I know that you can or can't win. And focus on electoral college, which is how you do or don't win. He agreed to it on the spot. And then the companion to that was her blue wall. I believe the Democratic blue wall is very real in 2016. And I said to him, let's focus on those 10, 11 states that Obama, Biden carried twice with more than 50% of the vote, where Hillary's not at over 50% at any sustained level in any credible polling. And third, most importantly, Chris, where a Republican has won statewide uh, for governor and or senator during the Obama-Biden years. That included your Florida, North Carolina, Iowa, Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. Do these sound familiar to anyone? And even states we ended up not losing, not winning, New Hampshire, Nevada, Colorado. But he said, okay. And I said, okay. He said, yes. And I said, well, who do I have to ask? And he looked around. And he said, well, you just asked me. I'm the guy in charge. <laughs> I mean, I had given this advice to the Romney people. Yeah, I had given this advice to the McCain people a little bit. They don't want to hear it because they're conventional politicians and this is the way you do it. And we were losing to Democrats like Barack Obama and Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton. Yeah. Um, I mean, Obama and Clinton were two-term presidents. That was totally unnecessary, everybody. And it happened. <laughs> so I, I, I like to give this advice to lots of people down the ballot also. And I'm really excited that the Republican Party you and I belong to right now is yeah. elevating and electing people like Myra Flores in the Rio Grande Valley in Texas. Um, we've got Jeanette Nunez, you know, a Hispanic woman. And I don't even like to be the bean counter. I mean, I'll yeah. put Jeanette Nunez against Kamala Harris any day of the week. In fact, that's a great <laughs> idea. I, I, I serve with Jeanette. I'd feel very bad for uh, Kamala Harris if yeah. she was up against yeah. Jeanette. Well, I, I you know, there's this, uh, I, you know, obviously we go to election night. Uh, I love that you talk about how everybody's pumped up. And actually it was President Trump who was more cautious and measured uh, the evening, which I thought was kind of an interesting look. And um, but there's this cool personal for you. You guys are in the ballroom. You've won. Uh, George, your husband is is you know got the the black Trump hat on, and he yells out, "She did it." Yep, he was crying. My husband George was so proud of Trump, who cool supported big league, um, but really so proud of his wife. And I do say in the book, people have to understand the facts. That people say, oh, without Kellyanne Conway, Donald Trump would not have been elected president. That's debatable. But what will never be in doubt, without George Conway, his wife, Kellyanne, could not have been campaign manager to the level I was. We had four school-aged children. He said, the only person I told about Donald Trump's offer to be campaign manager that day was my husband, George. And he said, Kellyanne, you have to do You're doing this. You have to do this. He said, I've been watched. I watched you be pushed aside. I watched these guys deny you and dismiss you. And I listened to your pitch. I've heard your pitch many times in speeches. I've heard your pitch, you know, many times over the years. And you have to do this. He said, with you, Donald Trump can actually win. Yeah. And I did it. And George was really proud of me. And George, like me, accepted a big job in the Trump administration. Um, that's just a fact. He accepted the, the position of 
head of the civil division at Donald Trump's Department of Justice. That's a huge job. Where all the civil cases go through. Um, and he accepted that. He was interviewing staff. He, he knew the president had nominated him. And he went to look at his office space there. We moved to Washington as a family, as a couple, yeah. mainly because George wanted to do something different with his career. And then he changed his mind about Donald Trump. But I think worse, he changed his mind about me. Um, and I'm very raw and very open about that in the book. And I do also say that, um, you know, George doesn't owe loyalty to any political party or presidential candidate. I got that. But um, I feel like he violated his marriage vows by doing things like Lincoln Project or op-eds without giving me the grace and the advance notice. Um, I, I think I deserve that as the mother of his four children, his wife of two decades. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Once you go uh, from the campaign, you go into the White House. Um, I know that you, you mentioned earlier about pre- I, I, I wasn't press secretary or comms director, which the president offered you, uh, you know, within 24 hours of, of the election victory. You go into the White House, you know, serve faithfully for the president and you decide at one point, hey, it's time to it's time to go. It's time to leave. Uh, tell us just briefly about that, about that decision. Well, I love my job. I love being in public service, Chris. Thank you for doing that. People may see you as a politician or this, that. You're a public servant. And I took my first public job, public service job at the age of 50. And I love it. So I left a job I loved and that I felt I was doing um, well in. I still have no scandals, no subpoenas, no indictments, no investigations. So um, I'll continue in that vein. But I left it for the, the, for the reason I had hesitated to take that job in the first place, my four children. And yeah. I call, I famously left and said, they need less drama, more mama. And what really compelled me to do that was they were about to start their second school year online, which was outrageous. If you go back and look, everybody really signed up for this, you know, slow the spread, screen time to school time from March to June of 2020. But then the doctors, including on the coronavirus task force said, oh, we'll have a great summer. You know, maybe you don't want to get on a plane and mask up, rent a car. And people did. We had a record number of car rentals, RV rentals. People enjoyed the summer of 2020. Then all of a sudden, it's mid to late, it's late August. It's days before three of my four kids are going to start school in Montgomery County, Maryland. And, and, the, and the health commissioner, one guy says, oh, by the way, we're going to start online again. What? So I, I told the president, I can't, I can't be here. I, no, 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 honey, be with the kids, but stay here. I said, oh, I, I would feel guilty. I can't do that. You know, they really need me. So I say at the age of 53, I became a stay-at-home mom. I invested in, you know, whatever the leisure wear is a lot of people wear. And um, <laughs> I haven't worked out on them, but I, I do have them. And anyway, uh, and I, I don't regret that decision. At all. I don't regret going to the White House to serve this beautiful country and its amazing people as a public servant, giving up millions of dollars to do that. And I don't regret leaving when I did because I made good on my promise to my children. And I'll be back. I, yeah. I am with a majority of Americans, a majority of Floridians that are upset and distraught. And yeah, a little bit angry and frustrated at the lack of leadership we have now from Biden-Harris. That's a majority of Americans right now. It certainly is a majority of independents, young people, suburban women. Everybody's upset. So I'm part of that majority. I'm part of the, part of the majority not so silent majority that wants Biden and Harris gone. So whatever that takes and whoever ends up running We're for president, I, I feel I have in me more public service. Yeah, I think so too. In it to win it for sure. Uh, last question for you, Kellyanne. I, uh, so many people write memoirs, uh, you know, they come out of a presidential campaign and, you know, in the marketing run up to the book release, it's all about the bombshell and the gossip and yeah. the thing that they're going to reveal. And it's, I think I personally, that always turns me off. I, I think it says a lot about you. 
that there is there isn't that in the book, and it certainly wasn't marketed that way. Just tell us, you know, that I think that makes you different. I think it makes you unique in the political process where people are always trying to do something for what's best for for me instead of what's best for for other people or being a teammate and so forth. So tell us, you know, that just not who you are. It's not who I am, and it was unnecessary. And I should mention, it debuted at the number one spot in the New York Times bestseller list and didn't do all those things you just yeah. talked about. So that says something. It's not a MAGA book, and it's not a book where, you know, I tell all these secrets about what Donald Trump really said, what he's really like. That he's The people who have done that should really take a look inside of themselves because they were given a tremendous opportunity to serve this country at the highest levels. And implicit, if not explicit, in all of that is that you're keeping the counsel of the president of the United States that you are not running out with your top secret security clearance, which I had and which several of these people have written books had, but they also have something that I don't. They slinked away in shame. They don't have a lot of other um, financial oper- commercial opportunities. They were fired um, or pushed out uh, and they see dollar signs. So I won't do that. Um, there are a lot of things I won't do, but I also, there are also never before heard stories about the Access Hollywood tape, me being the only woman in the room. There are never before told stories about debate prep in 2020. I had left the White House, but Amy Coney Barrett, they said, you got to come back and help her. I came back, but she didn't need anybody's help, including mine. I gave her my old office and she was off to the races. Um, but I was helping with debate prep and getting COVID from that, et cetera. So there are some things in there. And I also have a very lengthy afterward where I talk about how I did not write this book uh, as others are doing who are, I think are very ungrateful and shouldn't be trusted ever again. Um, and, I, and I wrote this book also in the afterward to talk about the 74 million Trump Pence voters, the highest number by far ever given to any sitting president. Mine, the, you know, mine is 662 who were in the US Capitol. The other 74 million weren't. And we should be very protective of them and we should be listening to them because I termed the phrase in 2016, the undercover hidden Trump voter. You know, Chris, these weren't men and women embarrassed to say they were voting for Donald Trump. They just wouldn't, they, you wouldn't expect them if you were just this garden variety pollster who doesn't dig into the data differently and doesn't respect the voters enough to tell you who they are. You're telling them who they are. No, voters tell you what's important to them. You don't tell them. If you tell them you lose and you know that because you've won. So the undercover hidden Trump voter was real, but it was more union household, more women, more immigrants, more Hispanics, more African-Americans, more Democrats, more people who had never voted, more people who called themselves independents, um, people who had not voted in a long time who had never voted. And I think they, you know, in 2020, when the Trump campaign, of which I was not involved at all, that $1.4 billion boondoggle that did not help him when outright and, over, outright and overwhelming and should have, they talked about the undercover hidden Trump voters. There's no such thing in 2020. In 2020, they were yeah. all wearing the red MAGA hats and having boat <laughs> Right. So, they, were on, um, they were on the boat with the Trump flag. Yes. Yeah. yes. Yeah. So I think what happens in one cycle does not necessarily happen in the next. Yeah. And if you respect the essential wisdom of people and you listen to them, you get that. So that's why I wrote this book. It's a lot of also in the afterward is also what's next. What's coming in this country? What's next? Well, we're excited about that. We're excited about what's next for the country, certainly. Uh, and we're really excited about what's next for you, Kellyanne. I'd, I'd encourage people to pick up the book. Here's the deal. It's called Here's the Deal. Um, they're trying to hide it in some of the bookstores now that it's a New York Times bestseller. So get your copy. <laughs> it's, also, it's also an Audible and ebook. People are really enjoying the audio version. I taped it all myself. It's 20 hours of Kellyanne. Uh, but, you know, to get you through that commuter, that workout, and uh, the inflection of my voice and my Philly accent and a lot of the way I punctuate some of the characters. 
uh, and real characters. So, um, but thank you so much for the platform today, Chris, for getting to know you and Shannon and your family a little bit better. Thank you so much and God bless you in your travels and in your public service. Thanks, Kelly. It was great having you. Take care.